Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy again this evening. We'll be in chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you're just joining us, we're continuing our series through this book. And uh, this is the letter written from Paul to young Timothy, who he has early, earlier in this book already referred to as his son in the faith. And uh, Timothy, of course, is a pastor in that first church of Ephesus. Now, as you're turning to 1 Timothy, we'll be looking in a moment at verses three, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And uh, as you're turning to chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, you'll begin in those verses to see instructions that God gives concerning the office of pastor. And in a moment, we'll explore those. We'll see those in verses 1 through 7. Next week, you will look ahead and begin to read ahead that in chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, Paul then gives the instructions on the office of, this is Wednesday night, I know. I should have warmed you up a little bit better, right? The office of, there you go, that was pretty good, on the office of deacon, and those become the two offices. And in both cases, Paul is detailing matters that pertain to the church. And there is a verse that we'll eventually get to in chapter 3, though we are now introducing chapter 3, and it is the apex of this book. And when, in many senses, it becomes the thesis statement for this book. It is the reason why Paul wrote this book. I want you to see that. We'll get to it in our journey eventually, but I want to skip to it, and that is verse 15 of chapter 3. Look at it there with me. It says, but if I tarry long, this is what Paul is writing. This is why I wrote the book of 1 Timothy, that thou mightest know how thou oughtest behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God and the pillar and ground of the truth. Here's why Paul wrote 1 Timothy. Paul wrote 1 Timothy that you would know how to do church. That's pretty much what he wants to do. That's why he wrote. Now, in chapter 3, of course, and looking back at the two offices, Paul here in these beginning verses is outlining that we need deacons who serve and we need pastors who shepherd, administrate, and lead. And if you don't have those two offices being healthy, you will not have a healthy church. And so Paul will give very specific qualifications. And this evening we're going to consider the first, the office of pastor. Of course, next week, the office of deacon. And probably no issue should occupy the attention of church leaders more than this passage in particular. When I was a youth pastor, my pastor was Pastor Rick Arrowood, and he had a huge frame in his office. I, I don't know, it may have been four feet by four feet. It may have actually been bigger than that. And it was listing in script form the qualifications of 1 Timothy chapter 3. And when you were in his office, it was the thing that stared you in, in the face. He intentionally put it there and hung it in a position where every time he sat down at his desk, it was the first thing he looked at. And every time we came in as pastoral staff members to his office, he would have us situated in a way that we were facing that picture frame. He, he wanted this just sunk deep into our hearts and minds. I, I appreciate the model that he gave me during that time. 1 Peter 5, 4 says that someday the chief shepherd will appear and there will be a reckoning of all the under shepherds. 
And that is very important, that, that there should be a sobering thing for pastors to consider. Acts 20, verse 28 says, Take heed to yourself and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers, to feed the flock of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. Did you notice the, did you notice the uh, really the seriousness and earnestness of that verse? You, you need to, as pastors, be sure that you are taking heed to yourselves and to the church that you are leading for this purpose, Acts 20, 28 says. Christ has purchased that church with his own blood. So there is therefore a bit of reverent trepidation this evening as I approach this text. Not in the same way as I introduced it last week, where I said last week my, I was trembling at the threshold of a biblical text. But this week I do find myself trembling because it is an important responsibility as mine. I must not be casual or cavalier or breezy when it comes to the pastoral ministry before me. And certainly the exhortations before us are God's inspired words to pastors about pastors. And so I want to read them with you in your presence, knowing that I'm preaching to myself tonight. But I hope you'll be able to listen in with me as we explore what Paul has to say, beginning in verse 1. This is a, a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he be able to take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Before we move any further in this text, I want to start by just looking at what Paul says when he says this is a true saying. In fact, that phrase, this is a true saying, occurs five times in the pastoral epistles. And each time Paul says this is a true saying, he is introducing something that is commonly accepted by believers, or obvious, you could even say. This is standard fare. This is fundamental, we could say. This is absolutely, you, you must get this right. You don't get this right, you don't get church right what he's saying. This is a true saying, which begs the question, what does a good pastor look like? You ever heard what a perfect pastor looks like? Maybe I could give it to you. He, he preaches 10-minute sermons. That's a perfect pastor. He, he condemns sin roundly, but he never hurts anyone's feelings. That's a perfect pastor. He works from 8 a.m. to midnight and is also the church janitor. He makes $200 a week and wears good clothes, drives a nice car, and lives in a nice home so as not to embarrass the church, but he donates $150 to charity each week. He is 29 years of age with 40 years of experience. He has a burning desire to 
work with teens and spends all of his time with the senior saints. He smiles with a straight face and has a sense of humor that keeps him seriously dedicated to his work. He makes 15 house visits a day and is always found in his office when you need him. And above all, the perfect pastor is always in the church down the street. I should joke about that one. In all seriousness, though, it is an important consideration because in a healthy church, a healthy church will have healthy pastors. And so we must examine this faithful saint. What, what is the true saint? What does a, a pastor look like? And as we've done many times already in this series, I, I kind of want to outline this by way of, of easy, using some questions. And I want to start by asking this question, what is the office? We, I know we've already kind of introduced it. I, I've said pastor over and over, but what is the office? Look what it says. If a man desire and he uses the, the understanding that he's talking about the office. So what is this office? If a man desire the office of, what word does he use here? Bishop. What does the word bishop mean? What does that word bishop mean? Overseer. That's exactly right. If a man desire the office of overseer. Let's come over here. I'm going to zoom out for just a moment because there are, there are three different words in your Bible that describe the office of pastor. Certainly, we just saw the first one here in 1 Timothy, and that is the word bishop, which means and refers to overseer. It's the word often, the Greek word episkopos, this bishop. There's another word that's used. I've been using it already in my introduction. Pastor, pastor, and the word pastor refers to what? Shepherd, and it's the Greek word poimen, and it refers to a shepherd. And there's a third word we'll find in our Bibles. Elder, elder, and this refers to uh, his careful study of God's word. It's the word presbyteros. And I want to tell you something, even as we come back to this text, that these three words are used interchangeably all to refer to the one and same office. Uh, keep, obviously, your finger in First Timothy, but I want to show it to you. Go with me to Acts chapter 20, just for a minute. I just want to show you this, because this is something that I'd say in church circles, even circles such as ours, it's something that is often kind of not fully understood. Go with me to Acts chapter 20. Let's start in verse 17. And I'm actually going to put the interlinear on the screen for you so you can understand. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is calling together church leaders. And he calls together them, and he calls them together and calls these men the elders. There's the title in Acts 20 verse 17, the presbyteros are called together. That's Acts chapter 20. And as he calls the presbyteros, the elders together, he begins to give them instructions on what they are to do. In fact, we read one of them earlier in Acts 20 verse 28 where we talked about take heed to yourselves and to the church that you were overseeing. And so he begins to give that instruction. And that verse I just read earlier says this, 
Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. And so he's talking to the elders and he's giving them instructions here in Acts chapter 20. And Paul says this in Acts 20 verse 28. Look at that verse for a moment. Notice the words he's using. He says, you need to poimeno, that's the word pastor, you need to shepherd, so elders are called to shepherd, that's in Acts 20 verse 28, and there's something else they're supposed to do. Did you see it in Acts 20 verse 28? I'm putting it in there on the Greek on purpose so you can see it. Over the which the Holy Ghost has set you as overseers, episkopos, that's the word elder. So here in Acts 20, there's an interchange of synonyms clearly referring to the same people who are indifferently called shepherds, elders, and pastors. Go, go with me to 1 Peter. I want to show you one more. 1 Peter chapter 5, so you can see this. And by the way, I circled that one. There's the poimain again. Uh, used in that same word. Of course, we are talking about the, the, the ecclesia of the church in Acts 20. Go with me to 1 Peter chapter 5, though, before we stumble into Acts 20 too deeply, because we are still in 1 Timothy. But 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter does the same thing. Peter writes, and he says he is writing to the elders. Do you see it there? That's presbyteros. That's who he's writing to. And he's going to give instructions to the elders. He, by the way, being a fellow elder, is giving this instruction, this exhortation, that they are to do certain things. What are they to do? Look at Acts 5, verse 2. This is the instruction to the elders. You are to shepherd, that's pastor, that's, that's poimen, and you are also to do what else? You are to exercise oversight, that's episkopos, that's, that's uh, the, the same one, take the oversight. So in, in two passages, I'm, I'm just showing them to you, the office of pastor, one office, is indifferently given three titles. Pastor, elder, and bishop all refer to the same office. Now this is an argument that was considered, actually settled in the early 19th century. J.B. Lightfoot, an early 19th century theologian, put it this way, it is a fact now generally recognized by theologians of all shades of opinion that in the language of the New Testament, the same office of the church is called indifferently bishop and elder and presbyter. There's only one office with three titles. Here's what Benjamin Merkel, he's a professor of Greek at Southeastern Seminary, said about these words. He said, quote, almost all scholars agree that a three-tiered ecclesiastical system is a later development and therefore foreign to the New Testament documents. When I say three-tiered ecclesiastical system, that is a seminarian's word for describing what? What is a three-tiered ecclesiastical system? A hierarchy in the church 
with three offices, commonly referred to as if you have three offices, often you'll have churches that have pastors and deacons and then what often added? Elders, as if elders is a third office. And what Merkel is saying, almost all scholars agree that a three-tiered system, having pastors and elders and deacons, is a later development. He continues and says, there is simply not enough evidence to maintain a distinction between the elder and overseer. It is clear that by the time the pastoral epistles were written, there were only two offices in the church. What two? Pastor and deacon. Go back with me to 1 Timothy. Here's why it's so important. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, he gives instructions in verses 1 through 7 to the pastors who are indifferently in Scripture already being referred to as bishop, elder, and pastor. That's verses 1 through 7. And then to the deacons, beginning in verse 8 and running down to verse 13, there are not a separate list of instructions you'll find in chapter 3 for the supposed third-tier office of elder. You won't find that. Now, here's, here's the, big, the question then. Why three words for one office? These are the three responsibilities. Phil said these are the job descriptions. What are the responsibilities of a pastor? Well, the word bishop, what word does that carry? We already wrote it down. The word is overseer. That refers to what function for a pastor? Administration. Pastor is to be an administrator. The word pastor, we already wrote that down. What is that referring to? Shepherding. What do shepherds do? They feed and lead. That's what a shepherd does, right? What about elder? What does that carry? Well, it's, a, it's an idea of care, a careful student of God's word. He's not flippant with the text, as you'll see even in the qualifications that are listed later. Here's what Paul is basically saying. Not just Paul, but Peter and others. A pastor who doesn't administrate is not a pastor. Just as a pastor who doesn't shepherd is not a pastor. Just as a pastor who doesn't study is not a pastor. All of those things. You can't just say, well, I'm just the preaching pastor. I don't administrate. That, that, that no such office exists. Or I'm just the administrative pastor, but I don't preach. No such office exists. Paul says all three responsibilities are part of one office, pastors are called indifferently in Scripture, shepherds, elders, and administrators. So what is the office? It is all three of those things. Now I want to move more forward now because I want us to continue to give us time to look at the qualifications, but I want to ask another question as we explore this, and that is, who wants this, right? <laughs> I think that's fair. <laughs> He does use those words, after all, look what he says. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. By the way, that is not the same Greek word. That is two different Greek words. Might look at it and say, it's desire. He just used desire twice. Actually, no, he didn't. These are two different 
Greek words. I'll show them to you. In case, for some of you, you enjoy seeing them, so I'll show them to you. It is two different d- Greek words. The first is orgate, which is the idea to reach out after or to, to stretch out, to, to stretch out your hand as if to grasp. That's what that means. And, and the second is this word here, which you'll see refers to a passionate compulsion. What's this mean when he says desire? Well, taken together, the two terms translated desire describe the man who outwardly pursues the office because of an inward compulsion that is driving him. You see what he's using? He's referring to this outward attaining to because of an inward heart throb that compels him to attain towards that. What I'm describing is what you probably heard to referred to as the call. Ever heard that? I've heard that often. In fact, Charles Spurgeon, I think, is the one who initiated that term. You don't know much about Charles Spurgeon. You're looking at Charles Spurgeon every time you come into this room. I don't mind if he remind you of that. This pulpit behind me is one of three replicas of Spurgeon's pulpit exist in America today. But Spurgeon was once who started a ministry school aptly named the Pastor's College, and he would train future pastors. And his lectures that he would give were later compiled in a book worthy of your own reading called Lectures to My Students. How many of you ever heard or read of that book, right? In lecture number two, Spurgeon has a lecture entitled The Call to the Ministry, And most would, at least in the English language, say Spurgeon was the first to just call this the call to the ministry, at least famously so. And Spurgeon believed in so much in this special calling that here's what he said to his students, and I quote, how shall a young man know whether he is called or not? That is a weighty inquiry, and I desire to treat it solemnly. It is a fearful calamity. For a man to miss his calling and the church upon whom he imposes himself, his mistake involves an affliction of the most grievous kind if he misses his calling. When I think about all but the infinite mischief which may result from a mistake of calling as to our vocation for the Christian pastorate, I feel overwhelmed with a sense of fear as I teach you. I had rather that we stood too much in doubt and examined too frequently than we should become cumberers on the ground we should not be treading. He's saying you need to be very clear. See, the word call is an impulsive word. This is not just someone who has this fleeting burden. Here's the question for a pastorate. The question for a pastor is not, could I be happy being a pastor? The question for a pastor should be, could I be happy doing anything else? And if you could be happy doing something else, do that and don't pastor. Paul is saying this is a, this is a compulsion because of an inward desire, a calling. By the way, I believe God still calls men into the ministry. I really do. And I believe God uses the church to help verify that call. I actually encourage you, if you're hearing me tonight, 
to think of ways you could encourage young men in the ministry. I would not be your pastor, I really believe that, if it wasn't along the way people in the church, seniors to me, were recognized and say, you could do this, and, and encouraged me and pushed me. I'm thankful for that. It confirmed something in my life. Maybe God could use that in your life to confirm that with the young people. Who wants this call? Well, it's a very special call, but I want to ask another question. That is number three. So who gets this, right? <laughs> who gets this office? Who gets this office? And, and here's where we begin to delve into the qualifications that really make up the bulk of this. And, and Paul now gives the necessary list of qualifications for the office of bishop. And this is a list that Paul is, Timothy is giving, or get given from Paul. And I'll go ahead and say that this particular list is not an exhaustive list. Now, why is this not an exhaustive list? Some Bible students will note that there are other passages like Titus 1, which also list the qualifications of a pastor. And there will be some obvious overlap, but there will be also some things that are not included in this list that are listed in Titus that are not included in Titus that are listed in this list. But Paul, of course, being the human instrument that wrote both, he lists them, and there are quite a few. So here's what I want to do. Maybe to help you out a little bit, I'm going to give you uh, some a breakdown that I've used to kind of categorize the different qualifications, and then we'll delve into them. I, I've qualified the qualifications this way. I talk about moral qualifications. We'll see that in a moment. I talk about home life qualifications. We'll see home life qualifications listed in a moment. We'll talk about spiritual maturity qualifications. Those are also going to be listed here in just a moment. And then finally, we'll talk about, I, I guess we could refer to it as public relations qualifications. You say, really? Yes, we'll see that in just a moment. Just to kind of broadly give us some headings. I don't know if you appreciate the headings that I give you. At least it helps me kind of quantify what we're talking about, because this is going to be about a big list. So let's start by talking about the moral qualifications. And what is the first moral qualification that we see Paul list here? What is it? He must be blameless. And I want you to just, just for a moment, I, I, I think it'd be important for us all to just kind of mark this particular word because it means above reproach. And I believe blameless here becomes kind of a, a summary title for all that's about to follow. It's, it's kind of the heading of headings for all of those that are about to follow. What it refers to is that an elder should not have anything questionable about either his public or his private life. Now, what are some things that could potentially be questionable about his public or private life? He says he ought to be, number two, what? The husband of one wife. Now, this kind of opens up Pandora's box of questions, right? This could mean that a pastor has to be married. Could mean that. It could mean that a pastor cannot be a polygamist. Would you agree with that one? <laughs> okay, I hope you would. I hope you're paying attention this evening. It, it could mean that a pastor must be faithful to his wife. Certainly that could mean that. It could mean that a pastor cannot be divorced. Some churches would say he can't even be remarried. Now, 
Here's what I would say. If we assume the first, that he must be married, we can make a strong case for the others, is how I would conclude that. If you, if you can assume he must be married, and I think a fair assumption is going to be made because there are other qualifications about his family that are seen later, then strong arguments could be made for the other questions that are arised in that. But he continues, he says he not only needs a husband of one wife, he also needs to be, what? Vigilant. There, there should be a strength and determination about him. He also should be sober. These kind of seem to go together. It means a pastor should be clear-headed, is what he's saying. And I'll, I'll put some of these down. I meant to do that earlier. It means he should be clear, clear-headed, is what he's referring to. He should be one that is uh, temperate. You, you could use the word, uh, instead of sober, you might use the word temperate here. He should be temperate. And if you use the word temperate, or referring to this vigilant here, and good behavior, you get the idea of temper, the idea being he doesn't have a short fuse. After all, he should not only be that, he should have, broadly speaking, he should have good behavior. What are we talking about when he's being good behavior? Well, his fleshly appetites is what we've talked about earlier now. They should be under control. He should be balanced and proper. By the way, this word, for good behavior is used one other time in, in chapter 2, verse 9. Go back with me to chapter 2. You can see where it's used so you can get an understanding where it's used. Same word is used in like manner. Women adorn themselves in, and there's the same word, modest. There's a, there's a modesty about him. By the way, I just want to inform you, that's why modesty doesn't refer to dress. Clearly, it doesn't, because this is the same exact word. Modesty refers more to behavior. And so th- this is what he's talking about, this behavior about this man. What else should he do? He should be given to what? Hospitality. What is hospitality? Welcoming friendliness. Welcoming friendliness. Can anybody think of some verses that talk about hospitality? How many read my newsletter? I shouldn't ask you to quiz you on that. I waxed eloquent on hospitality. I thought it was a good time to do that. (laughs) Romans 12, verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints, pursue hospitality. That's what it says. You run after it. This is an exhortation to all, certainly to a pastor. 1 Peter 4, verse 9, show hospitality to one another without, anybody know how to finish that one? Grudging, apparently because we're all complaining because you broke my coffee maker, I guess, is the problem. Listen, if you have people over, your house is going to be the one that's got carpet stains. I think that, that, that's the way it should be in many ways. Our houses are used for that purpose. I think we've missed the boat a little bit on hospitality in this era because we can just take you out to eat. I don't view that as hospitality because I, don't, I, don't, I just don't. All right? Moving forward, it says, not given too much wine. I'm going to skip that to teach because we'll come back to that one. Not given too much wine. What's he referring to that? Well, I believe, I really do, that this is a prohibition against drinking. And, and, and in fact, Scripture is full of cautions against wine and alcohol. Proverbs makes a tremendous case against it, if you need any other book. Even in the New Testament times when the natural fermentation was so weak compared to the process of distillation today, drinking was not to be part of an overseer's life. 
that just wasn't to be a part of it. Now, I just want to make it clear. I'll make my position clear in case you're guessing. If it is a necessary standard for church leadership qualifications, I believe that it extends to all of us as well. I really do. And this is a clear qualification. Now, before moving forward, he says, not, no, no what? No striker. What, what is he referring to when he says striker? You could say that is not violent is what he's saying. Not pugnacious. God does not call debaters to the pulpit. He's not just open to all these kind of things. In fact, this is who he is. In fact, moving forward, he actually says he's not greedy of filthy lucre. Now, this is a Wednesday night, so I want to do something because I want to help you out. I don't think it's fair to not alert you to things that you may find out later. And as a shepherd, I want to be sure you're careful on these things. This particular phrase doesn't appear in all the manuscripts. In fact, it only appears in a minority of the manuscripts in the Greek. It does not appear in all of them. There are two common differences. There's what we refer to as the TR, and then there's the critical text. Let me just show it to you in the English so you can kind of see them side by side. You you can see there in verse 3 that it appears in the TR, and it does not appear in the critical text. So some of you may be in your laps or holding an ESV or a NASB or a New King James or some, New King James actually would be on the TR side, excuse me. Some of you are holding a modern translation that does not have this particular one in it. And so you're wondering, where is that? Well, there are manuscript families from which these modern translations and ancient translations come from, and it is a worthy conversation to have. I do want to ask this question. I can do this on a Wednesday night. If, I, if this was not in it, and, and the argument could be made that it would appear that this was added probably by a copyist of Titus 1 verse 7, it was added to some of the, the, the lesser known manuscripts in the TR, if I take that out of the TR, what qualification did I take out? You got to think carefully. Am I treading on sacred ground for you? This is important. I I don't think it's fair to just ignore like these question marks. I think it's appropriate for us to delve into them. If I take it out, what qualifications did I just take out? Even just from 1 Timothy. I didn't take out any. You say, really? Yes, why? It says not covetous at the end. Exactly. Isn't that amazing? Even when it comes to things where we can talk till the cows come home about the TR versus the critical text, we are talking about differences that amount to less than half a page of your Greek text. That's what we're talking about. We really are. And I think a lot has been made over this debate that should not have been made. It really amounts to very little. And even differences such as this one did not take away the qualifications list because after all, it does say at the end, not covetous, which is to say not greedy. Praise the Lord for clarity in his inspired word. But he continues. What else does he say? Not only that, but, not, but he must be, positively, he must be patient. What is patience? Well, that's gentle is what he's referring to. The, the, this word speaks to not demanding his own rights. That's who he is. And furthermore, not a brawler. I want to show this word to you because it actually helps. I think it will help you understand and unlock that word. When he says he should be gentle, gentle and not a brawler, meaning peaceable, you can see it's the Greek word a macho, and you kind of can see macho, right? Macho man, right? 
And you can almost put the awe in front of it to negate it. That's what he's saying. Not a macho man, right? An elder should not get into fruitless quarrels is what he's saying. Even about theology. Ever met guys that are just always have a bone to pick with you about theology? Ever met some of those people? I'll tell you a good exercise if you meet some of those people in the hallways according to 2 Timothy. We read that earlier. The guys that always want to debate you on theology, here's a good plan of action. Ready for it? You can write this down. Walk away. Right? <laughs> right? And here he says, if that person is wanting to be a pastor, but he's a debater, he's a you know, pugnacious fool, he's disqualified. That, that, that's not what we need in our pulpits. We need the word of God, not debaters in our pulpits. Those are what, we, what I refer to as the moral qualifications, and that is our letter A. But there's another one. There's home life qualifications. What's the first home life qualification you see there in verse 4? One that ruleth well his own house. And when he talks about his own house, he's really referring to all aspects of that man's family life. His relationship to his wife, his relationship to their finances, the upkeep of their home even. These are what it's referring to all of those. As one preacher rightly said, you can have a ministry with your family, but you cannot have a ministry without your family. And so this is very important. And so he goes a step further and he says, having his children in subjection with all gravity. Now, there's another sticky point, right? Because here we've got to ask, does this mean if my toddler children are unruly, I'm disqualified? Does this mean that if my teenage children are rebellious, I'm disqualified? Does this mean if my adult children are wayward, I'm disqualified? You have to answer that. We've got to wrestle through this. Now, it may be argued that it's not the pastor's fault if his children are rascals because each child has their own mind. But nonetheless, a pastor's leadership in the home is to be seen as a microcosm of his leadership in the church. And we know that because of the very next verse in verse 5. In the very next verse, he says, for this reason. Here, here's why this is so important. If a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? I will then ask, just at this moment, that you pray for me and my family. Because Satan will attack the Phelps family to disqualify me maybe more than all the others combined. And I will say that because I have seen that and some of you have as well. And therefore, these home life qualifications, I hope, are a source of prayer for my family in particular. I plead with you in that regard. I have never touched a drop of alcohol and do not plan to. But I am a father and I am a husband. And the devil will use ways to use that enormous responsibility to disqualify me as he has disqualified many pastors before me on this particular issue. Paul says this is very important. I hope this is a source of prayer for you. But he continues, he says, not only home life qualifications, but let her see I put spiritual qualifications. Look what he says in verse two. I skipped it. We'll come back to it now. Apt to teach. 
God's word does indeed tell us to consider the pulpit demeanor of this man. I'm saying it, it, it is possible to be a good person, but not a good teacher. There, there has to be an ability here that this is the one characteristic of giftedness that is clear, and where I think we can begin to encourage young people along the way. And the other one, the other kind of spiritual qualification he gives is that this man ought not be a novice. This is the word neophyte. What is that referring to? Not a novice. Not a new Christian. Not a new convert. We know that because it's not a, it can't be referring to a matter of age. Why do you think it can't refer to a matter of age? What's that? Paul has told Timothy, let no man despise thy youth. And further, Timothy is the one refer, re, reading this. This is to Timothy, who we know is young. And this cannot refer to a matter of experience for the same reason. Right? Timothy hasn't had much experience, after all. That's why he's having to get this letter. Novice refers not to a Christian lest being lifted up with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Here's what Paul is saying. A new convert who is soon thrust into a position of leadership in the church is especially vulnerable to the sin that Satan fell from heaven with. Pride. That, that is a very vulnerable position. Don't thrust people into that. And there's a third one. What's the fourth? I call them public relations qualifications. He says he must have a, what does he must have in the community? A good report, a good testimony, right? It, it, this is what he's referring to. Specifically, he's talking about a good testimony outside. Why is it important he has a good testimony outside? What's Paul's answer? Lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. By the way, I want to just mark something with you. I've already had you highlight blameless at the very beginning as a key word. I want you to highlight one more key word, and that is this good report, because blameless and good report become the bookends of these qualifications. In other words, the point of credibility in his testimony become very important bookends for all of these qualifications. If I were to lay them out on my bookshelf, I'd have I'd have blameless on one side and good report on the other, and all of these are what that would look like. Now, you may be asking, I hope you are, how can we apply this passage? We're not all pastors. <laughs> Let me ask you, how can you apply this passage? You're not all pastors. What is the application? Yep. Well, we, are all we are all witnesses. I'm so glad you said that. We are all witnesses. If these things are necessary qualifications of a pastor, should they not also be something every believer should attain to? I believe they are. Not just to be a pastor, but to be like Jesus Christ. God doesn't want everyone to be a pastor, I get that, but God does want everyone to be more like Jesus. So certainly one of the applications is we are all witnesses, we are all ambassadors. What's another obvious application I've already pled with you to do? Pray. I hope you're praying for your pastors. This is so important. I want to end with one more question. Who picks these people? I'm only asking that because in April of last year, I was officially installed as your pastor. 
In fact, it was April 23rd. And I'll remember that day because it changed my life. What criteria do you use to make such a decision? Let me give you a few wrong criteria. These are not all original to me, but I think they are things that I've seen and experienced that I've seen other churches do, and I'm so thankful our church did not do. Personality or popularity. Many churches look for charisma and enthusiasm and popularity in their pastors, and many pastors could be described as such, but that is not a qualification, is it? How about pride of the past? Perhaps a man is successful, built a great ministry, written a best-selling book as a nationally recognized pastor. Certainly many men could fit that bill. That is not a qualification, is it? How about politics? <laughs> it's not what you know, it's who you know. It's the right strings pulled and the right strings uh, hands shaken and you get the office. I want to let you know the office that is gained by politics will suffer the very instability of those politics. And how many churches have suffered that because basically they just hire all of the pastor's family? Politics. How about a pocketbook? If a church has to woo a pastor by big bucks and huge compensation... Some pastors come into the room almost with a negotiation tactic. That should be a huge red flag. But the decision of who should serve as a pastor is one of great prayer and great patience with the exploration of these qualifications as well as the ones given in Titus 1. And this evening, I just want to commend, because I haven't had a chance to publicly do so, the, the pulpit committee of this church that you were blessed with who took these qualifications seriously. And, and I will tell you, and I can attest, they were thorough. <laughs> and I still have nightmares about it. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but I, one of the things, and I've not had a chance to really share this from my heart, but one of the things that drew me to this church was the fact that there were men in the room who were very careful very studious in the questions that they asked of me. And it was that exercise at first that really led us here. Let me just conclude with this testimony. I've never, I've never had a chance to really share it. We were scheduled to come down here years before for that week of meetings in January, the refresh conference. And at the time of that schedule, there was no in plan of either party of me ever being here. They had called me to talk about the possibility. And actually, Marshall Franklin was the first to refer, call me, and my first response, although I didn't say it in so many terms on the phone, was no, I don't think so. And uh, even as we were here, I will tell you in all transparency, my heart was not settled, neither was my wife's, and we were just not, we just didn't really want to do that. We, were, we wanted to be where we were. We were thankful for where we were. And all those nights that I was preaching to you, those days leading into it, I was getting grilled <laughs> by the pulpit committee. I mean, we had hour-long meetings. And as I was getting grilled by the pulpit committee, I'd then come in to preach to you, and I was getting to know you and your heart. And it was about Tuesday 
of that week. On Monday or Sunday on that week, we were still ready to tell our pulpit committee no. On Monday of that week, I was still ready to tell the pulpit committee no. It was on Tuesday of that week that God solidified in our hearts as a couple, even independent of one another. We knew this was God's will for our lives, and it was really scary. We had built our house and lived in it for three months. (laughs) We were so thankful for what God was doing, but I knew God was doing something special And I just want to say it was actually the exploration of these verses by virtue of the questions being asked of me by the pulpit committee that led me to settle in my heart what eventually took place on April 23rd. And I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful for you. And I still feel your prayers even today as I come in. Thankful for God's work. He gave me a desire years ago that compelled me to want to be a pastor. I didn't know it would be in Taylor, South Carolina, but I'm thankful and honored that you would allow me to be your pastor. Questions, comments as we close. Mike? We know that you're building a house. Maybe you should stop. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mike. <laughs> we'll just live out there on the parking lot from here until eternity. <laughs> Other comments as we close. Next week, we'll give it to the deacons. (laughs) Pastors got it this week. Next week, deacons, be prepared. Maybe deacons don't want to come that week. I'm just kidding. We'll read verses 8 through 12. Let's close with a word of prayer as God continues to lead. Lord, we thank you so much for the privileges ours to come together and to study your word. We're thankful, Lord, for the clear qualifications that you have inspired in your word for us. May we take them so very seriously. They are, in fact, very serious. They are your inspired word for for pastors to pastors. I'm thankful for this church and for what you have given me the responsibility and honor to do and be the pastor here. Bring us back even on Sunday as we worship you. Pray this in your name. Amen.